The secret of life is eat as much peanut butter as you can, protect your big brother from no good women, and listen to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile every day. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Greg Gehring is a national treasure if I ever saw one. A singer, songwriter, archivist, innovator, student, and all-around character, Greg is one of those guys who, if anyone ever takes up the task of writing a biography on him, they're going to have plenty of material. Just about anybody you've heard of in traditional country, bluegrass, Americana, and a few other genres, Greg's got a personal story about him. Now, all of his life, he's not had the best of health, and more recently, things have gotten a bit more serious. To help out with Greg's medical expenses, a GoFundMe project has been launched, which you can find by searching for his name, Greg Gehring, that's G-A-R-I-N-G, on GoFundMe.com. If you can chip in, Gehring and American Music at Large would greatly appreciate it. And we were fortunate that Greg had a day recently where he felt well enough to chat, and so we went out back by the woodpile to reminisce on his colorful life and the musical legends he both admired and befriended. Down past the bottom, down past the bottom where the devil won't So you were born in Pennsylvania, correct? Yep, Erie, Pennsylvania. Well, tell me about growing up. Well, it was a very cold place. I had some health issues and there wasn't much to do, so I just started playing music. Beautiful nature there and, you know, the three months that it's not mm-hmm. <laughs> freezing cold. Yeah, Erie was a strange little town in the 30s. It was, it's, it was halfway between Chicago and New York, and there's still a train station that you can get on and go either way. And uh, so a lot of jazz people, Armstrong, Billie Holiday, a lot of people would do residencies. It was kind of like a, almost a resort community in those days. And then Cleveland being right next door, you know, Erie was pretty early in on the rock and roll thing. and. So a lot of that still remained in the town, those memories? Yeah, uh, you know, the radio. There was one station that just, he would only play old school country music and bluegrass. That's all he played. And uh, he read the news out of the newspaper, and he played the entire side of the record. And when it would get to the end, sometimes it would just <laughs> on the radio for like five minutes. And you'd wait, and you'd flip it over and play the whole, the whole other side. Were you and asleep like, or something? Or? Well, one time we went out to see him because we just well, we were curious. It was a bluegrass band I was in. And so we're pulling up, and the record's skipping at the end. And uh, he's, he's out in the yard playing with his dog, playing fast bits. It was just their house, oh. and they were on all day. And the day. FCC didn't bug them? Or do they have a license? Uh, oh, they have a license, okay. yeah. And it, this, you know, I'm talking about the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, huh. It was easier in those days. And he always had a cigar in his mouth, and you could hear it over the radio. <laughs> like, you could just tell. Him, oh, he would just you know, talk with a cigar yeah, in his and mouth? He'd read, he'd, he'd read the newspaper and give all these critiques of everything. And he'd do the weather forecast mm-hmm. just by looking up in the sky, and he was always right over the three television <laughs> stations in town. Run, old Molly, run! Run, old Molly, run! A lot of bluegrass guys in that area. A lot of guys moved up in the 50s from the Carolinas and, and Virginia and Tennessee and up into that area, you know, the northern cities for work. And so there's a surprising number of really good old school bluegrass guys that were about my age now then, you know. 
So I was on the bluegrass circuit by the time I was 17, traveling all over and, you know, on shows with Bill Monroe and all, you know, everybody. And uh, You were playing with these guys at that point? Well, I was in a, in a local band in Did Erie, but we traveled and we'd be on the, the days of the festivals, you know, the big bluegrass festival. Did y'all have a name, your band? Well, I was in two bands, at the, three bands, actually, <laughs> right off the bat. Um, Generic Grass was actually the first band I was in. And then I played with a group up from Buffalo called Dempsey Station, and uh, they were a little more traditional in my direction. And we'd make the pilgrimage to Bean Blossom every year and stay all 10 days. And I remember one time we got there on the first day, and there's sea lawn chairs out in front and a bunch, of, you know, half empty and half with old folks sitting there staring at an empty stage. And couldn't help but notice a couple hours later it was still going on. And I, you know, I knew James Monroe, Bill's son, from here. Well, this is way back in the early 80s. He came up and shook on my tent. He's like, call me Bubba for some reason. He's like, Bubba, uh, I didn't book no bands during the week. You think you'd get something together? <laughs> and so I played 28 shows myself and then organized I don't know how many other bands. And uh, at the end of the weekend, Bill come up to me and handed me $100. I think, think thanks for helping. Really? <laughs> and I was supposed to pay like 800 people out of that. Oh, no. But, uh, a song from your childhood that was just to this day that it's just the one that you think oh that's that's a perfect song there's just no way when my friends were playing with their tinker toys and tonka trucks my bedroom was stacked to the ceiling with 78s and uh, in every possible direction of music and you still have them your 78s i still have some stuff scattered around Mm -hmm. (laughs) the country i've lived so many places and left things in stores but uh yeah i think i still have some that i've had since i was six or seven years old. So you were part of getting downtown Nashville back up to snuff before it was kind of a place that people didn't want to go. Well, you know, I'm not crazy about the route it went but it's, at least it's still a music strip and there's something there. Oh, I, I can remember about 86 walking through the alley and just shaking my head and saying, man, there's gotta be a way. There's gotta be a way to make this what it used to be, what it deserves to be again, you know? I, I, I saw downtown as like Preservation Hall in New Orleans mm-hmm. on a bigger scale. And at that time, there was still plenty of the old timers sitting around doing nothing. And all these people coming to Nashville looking for something that they couldn't find. If I came to you, would you let me down? Would you hold my hand? Would you stay around? My downtown started back before they kind of paved over the rhyme and it was just magical to walk in there, just feel the music, you know. So I, about 20 years old or something, go in for 75 cents, I think, and just walk around, you know, wasn't a tour or anything. I did that once, and then the next day I come back with my guitar, and I went up to the little old guy with the little visor cap on behind the little bars at the old ticket booth that was still there in the front. He still go in the front doors on Fifth Street. And I said, can I sing a song? He said, uh... 
yeah, sure, why not? So I got up there and sang for about an hour. All these tourists sat down and were watching. I brought a little lunch, so I got down off stage and I was sitting in the front. The place was empty at that point. I was eating my sandwich and the tour guides all come up to me and said, you know, son, that's that old music. You, you, you come back every day if you want to. So I pretty much just went down there. Did they pay day. you anything? No, oh, hell no. Yeah. You know, it was, it was just a, it was a ghost town down there and that was just this rickety old museum mm -hmm. that you could walk through. Then we had a great bluegrass legend in this town named Hubert Davis. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And he owned a club up under JJ's Market that they're tearing down to build condos now, and uh, the Bluegrass Inn. And he kind of got muscled out of that spot by some nasty neighbors and uh, wound up on 2nd Avenue and it wasn't the best place to be in those days because there was nobody downtown. And uh, Hubert passed away quite young, I think 54. And uh, I stepped in and kind of took his place, running the place and, and helping the family keep the place going and then wound up just kind of taking it over because I had to. And uh, so yeah, that was where Hooters was. That was about 91, I guess. So that was, we were down there five nights a week playing. Kane Baker and Josh Graves would come in once a month and play. Hubert's widow, Ruby Davis, one of the greatest bluegrass singers, she actually owned the club. Mm -hmm. you know, I ran it for her. Kind of owning a club without owning a club and having all the responsibilities without. But the, <laughs> well, it was just passion to keep, you know, there wasn't nothing going, you know. Mm -hmm. I actually slept in the office and lived in the office in the front, which mm -hmm. is a Hooters t shirt display now. And, uh, <laughs> and that was a rickety but beautiful little building, you know, at that time. Just plaster all over the walls, you know, two inches thick and uh, 17 foot ceilings. It's 6,800 square feet. I put on a, one of those doctor masks and uh, closed early and knocked every bit of plaster off of those walls with the sledgehammer. And I wound up having to close the next day because there was just two inches of dust on everything. But mm. but yeah, you can still go in Hooters and see my oh. sledgehammer work in a couple of spots I missed and hit the brick. During that time, do you remember writing some songs that would have reflected what you were going through? Uh, I did write one song there. I was in there all by myself one night. It was about three in the morning. I had all the stage lights, colored lights on, everything, and I, I don't know why, but it's just a song uh, Emmy Lou actually almost cut one time. I had it on hold, uh, but I cut on the Alone record that uh, Dream Too Real to Hold. Someone who would care, someone to record my mother had it's a double album set probably got on on TV you know about 1960 mm -hmm. and uh, it's 50 stars 50 hits and it just had this blue album cover with real cheap graphics and it has just little postage stamp pictures of all 50 artists across and uh, give me 40 acres by the Willis Brothers probably the first country song I ever learned. Give me 40 acres and I'll turn this rig around. It's the easiest way that I've found. Some guys can turn it on a dime or turn it right downtown. 
I've always kind of done my own thing, but I, I took every opportunity I had to work with my heroes. I guess the first guy that I worked with, well, there's this guy out of Pittsburgh that was a pretty big bluegrass guy on the circuit, but he retired in 1960, but he's he's still at it at 80-something. Mm -hmm. His name is Mac Martin, Mac Martin and Dixie Travelers. This world can't stand alone. Mac offered me a job, but I've never driven because of my health issues, and uh, I, it was just too far for me to get, you know, so I was real disappointed because that was my first, like, wow, because he was, you know, kind of a bluegrass legend. So Wheeling, West Virginia was, you know, competing pretty hard against the Opry there for a while. Pittsburgh's stone's throw from Wheeling, so there's actually a lot of the country pioneers. KDKA in Pittsburgh was the first station period in America, first mm. commercial radio station, and it was loaded with hillbilly music in mm. 1925 or whatever it was. Yeah, and then after Mac, I, I uh, accidentally wound up working with Frank Wakefield for a while, who's still kicking and, and at it. He's on that top five list of bluegrass Maryland players for sure, you know, and one of the most imitated. down here a minute and I, I lived in this uh, Two Rivers campground on uh, Music Valley Drive and paying a ridiculous amount of money <laughs> for a space that I could have had a house and a half here for in those days and the same amount of money on it, payments on a on a fifth wheel trailer which is great when you don't drive all because Monroe had a nightclub about 100 yards away. <laughs> Summertime is past and gone and I'm old it started out as the Bluegrass Hall of Fame. It was like a museum, but that it didn't do nothing. And there weren't that many tourists, really, in Nashville in those days. So then they, his son James turned it into a nightclub. But Bill was usually over there two, three days a week at least, hanging out and playing. And if you ever asked Bill where he learned his music, he called it the ancient tones. And he was a little cross-eyed hillbilly kid that even his family picked on. And they'd go into a big city like Owensboro, <laughs> and uh, the people throw rocks at them and wow. call him hillbilly. I mean, it was pretty rough for those folks in those days. And then he was kind of outcast amongst his own. So and, uh, mother gave the three boys the three instruments, and you know, big brother Charlie got the guitar and Birch got the fiddle and Bill got the little round back mandolin that was like a woman's instrument so everybody could make fun of him even more. <laughs> but he took off in the woods with it and that's kind of how he spent his, you know, mm -hmm. free time in his childhood. And he swears that he just heard it and just came to him. There's something to that, you know. There's something about picking up something out of the ether. Mm -hmm. 
and I just absorbed and learned so much from those guys just from being around them that it was never like here's a lick or here's a right. chord or you know now timing that's a different thing I definitely learned yeah. my timing from those guys especially Jimmy Martin he was the king of that that experience you're talking about him picking up something from the ether is there something that you feel like you've picked up that's maybe independent from anybody else no, I mean, not that, but it's there. I mean, science knows it's there. You know, our top scientists have been saying forever there's enough energy in a cubic square foot of what we think of as empty space to boil all the oceans on the planet if we just knew how to harness it. But the thing is, we are harnessing it all the time. It's how we exist, how we, you know, all this God particle stuff. Well, there it is. They found it. There's that thing that's there that we can't see, and it's what connects everything. The Akasha, they call it, and the Akashic records, they speak of, you know, where you can, well, that, it's, it's information, it's literally information floating around the air, and if you just shut up <laughs> and stop thinking, it's just kind of, you know, when I get on stage, I don't know where I'm at, I'm just floating. Sometimes I think it's funny, and sometimes I'm annoyed, people would be like, what's that third song you sang? It's like, are you kidding? <laughs> I don't even remember getting up there, I just let something happen. Well, I traced a little footprints in the snow. I found a little footprints in the snow. Lord. I blessed and a happy day that nearly lost her way. For I found her when the snow lay on the ground. Yeah, next to Monroe's there. There was a KOA campgrounds in between, and it was kind of off season. It was real quiet and. I knew there was a pool table in the little rec room they had, so I just went in and I was shooting pool by myself. This old man standing behind me, kind of looking at me funny. I was trying to ignore him. He looked like a gangster, all dressed up in a suit. And he kept getting closer and closer, and he's like really watching me play this just like private game of pool. And I was finally I got a little frustrated. And he walked over and he elbowed me and he pointed at the table and he went like that. And just out of frustration, I hit and I sunk two balls. Just at that moment, somebody walked by and said, "Hey, Minnesota, how you doing today?" And I turned around and looked, and he was 80, but it was Minnesota Pats. Really? He became one of my hanging buddies, and this is the craziest part. He bought the Hermitage Hotel downtown, lived upstairs, and it was because he idolized Bill Monroe, really? and he loved Bill Monroe, and so he just wanted to retire to Nashville and go see Bill play all the time at his nightclub. So. Wow. Yeah, one of my first friends in Nashville was <laughs> Minnesota, Fats. Minnesota Fats. The next thing after having the bluegrass in was then, you know, I just kind of played around here and there. And Windows on the Cumberland was always a fixture downtown. Was so Boots could, the bartender then? Yeah. Yeah. So I'd play there some, but that you know that was a little veggie restaurant. And it was it was awesome, but it, it wasn't that bringing back the old days I was looking for. A couple of folks asked me to take over the back room at Tootsie's on the weekends, and I kept saying you're crazy. You know, if I was offered Tootsie's when we lost the bluegrass, you know, Robert Moore offered me Tootsie's for five thousand dollars, and I said absolutely not. I said that that'll never come back, and it'll never clean up, and you just get shot down there. And then there was homeless people living in there, locked in at night. Like it was a really strange scene in, in those days, and very dangerous. Owning a bar wouldn't have been so smart on that strip back then. There's this fellow named Preston Rombog, a bass player, and in fact, I just seen him the other day for the first time in forever. One day he pulled up and he had a piece of pizza and one for me. He's like, get in the truck, Greg. I was like, oh, good Lord, Preston. What are we doing this time? He's like, I just want to show you something. Like I said, I basically just stopped playing downtown for the first time in 10 years. 
went into Tootsie's and I was like, why on earth are we here? <laughs> and uh, he said, well, this fellow wants to talk to you. This guy named Jim Lawrence has been put in charge of uh, trying to get the back room going again at Tootsie's. And, you know, the front room was barely going. I mean, it was a, a bunch of drunks, druggies, prostitution going on on the street, peep shows, and the occasional lost, scared German tourists <laughs> trying to find the Nashville that, you know, yeah, kind of they heard about the songs. Well, it didn't exist for a minute there, you know. Somehow they talked me into coming and playing that Friday night. First night we play, there's about eight people in there, you know. And this woman came walking up to me after the first set, and she said, "You're amazing. Are you playing tomorrow night too?" And I said, "No, this is this was enough for me." And the bass player said, "We'll be here." It's like, oh, you know. So we finished up the set and we got off the stage and uh, you know me, I lived in the dark ages, but it was Lucinda Williams. And uh, she said, look, you deserve to be heard. Let me, let me call some friends. Within two weeks between the press that happened all of a sudden, you know, John Prine was also with Lucinda that night and uh, they just kind of brought everybody down and it just kind of happened all at once. Like after being here for 10 years wow. and not being able how to figure out how to get into any kind of circle or clique. Like the love told me, how can I believe? Oh, I want you to say what every time you ride to me and walk away. You know, there was amazing moments like Lucinda would, she'd always get up and do the last sat usually about 10 people of us there left. Marianne Faithful came in one of the first nights. She's, we sang a bunch of Hank Williams songs together. Mm -hmm. So I looked up one night and there was this guy who looked like Tex Cobb's scary brother, like mm -hmm. just like a big, huge, like bloody man standing yeah. there with this psychotic look on his face and he's holding a baseball bat. And I was like, oh my God. So I just bolted off the stage and went out the back and came in through what was the wagon burner at that time and ran and I grabbed every bouncer on the street. One of them come running up the other way and he was all beat to hell and we were like, okay, that's <laughs> that guy, it's gotta be. So they just went running in there just before God knows what happened. Cause this was, but it really was like that insane down there. Like what this was demented the... hillbilly came down out of the woods with his baseball bat to kill city people or something. I, I can't even describe <laughs> some of the, we were playing on Christmas Eve in the front window just for the hell of it. We all went down to have a beer. There was nobody in the place except the bartender. And we're like, oh, let's set up and play. Before the night was over, I, I don't remember which joint across the street, you know, some of them had signs in the windows that says, this is a real honky-tonk, mm. you know, enter at your own risk. Mm. This is our clubhouse. And uh, somebody come hauled out with a blanket over him on the gurney dead and <laughs> Merry Christmas on Lower Broadway. And I'd seen that happen out at the wagon burner too when I worked at the... For the only job, job I've ever had in my entire life was two weeks at the Ernest Hub record shop because I was on the Midnight Jamboree as a regular in those days. They, they needed the help bad, so I, I thought, well, that'd be cool to work was it down cool? here. But, well, I had a blackjack and, a, <laughs> and, a, and, and some brass knuckles mm -hmm. in the cash register that weren't mine. They just came with the job. Yeah, it was pretty sketchy. I remember one day a fella just ran in and just tried to pick up the cash register and run out the door with it. And... I didn't even, I was 20 years old, I didn't even have time to think or move, I just froze and 
I forget who, but somebody had that blackjack out of that cash register swinging at that guy so fast. Wow. And he dropped the cash register and ran out the door. There's a couple down there that there was a few refugees that never left from the 40s and 50s. Mm. I guess it's called Legends Corner now. Was uh, was my favorite place on the street, and I'd have, I'd have played there in a heartbeat, but they had just closed down. The Wanda and Louis, it was called, and I don't know their last names. I think they both passed away. If you're alive and listening to me, I didn't mean to offend you. They were real characters, and they were. Wanda was 16. She met Stonewall Jackson in the alley, coming out from the Ryman, and uh, he's like, "You're a pretty girl. You want to come in with me?" So he brought her into Tootsie's and. She stepped foot in the place and Miss Tootsie grabbed her by the arm and pulled her behind the bar and said, Honey, I need help, and uh, put her to work without even asking in the VIP room up there. And about four hours later, she said, uh, Miss Tootsie, I really have to go to the bathroom. And she just pointed to a bucket behind the screen. <laughs> but they were so insanely slammed. And it was the dressing room of the Grand Ole Opry. But uh, yeah, she never left Lower Broadway. Mm. <laughs> she was always a bartender or owned a bar down there ever since. And her husband, Louis, was bartender and worked a lot. He was the bartender at Tootsie's, I believe, mm. when I very first went in there. My first experience with Tootsie's was about 85, maybe. And uh, I'd come down to go to Bluegrass Convention or something. It was a year before I moved down here. We were trying to find the station in. We didn't know Nashville at all. and so. We pulled up and I recognized uh, Tootsie's Orchid Lounge. Wow, that's cool. I'll go in there and use the phone and see where where the station in is. And uh, it's just like out of a movie. I walked in the door and everyone in the place turned and stared at me. And the entire room got silent. Even the guy on stage playing guitar just like stopped. Yesterday you went out to see Mac Wiseman? Yeah, that was really... That was really special. I, I wasn't as close to Mac as a lot of the guys that have passed away, but we definitely had our share of singing songs together and being at picking parties. He's and, like 90-something years old? Mac's 90, still at it. Just made a brilliant new record with Peter Cooper and uh, still writing songs, still the voice with the heart. <laughs> you were telling me when we weren't recording that you played a couple songs in spite of your not feeling well, and he kept asking for more. That's got to... Yeah, it's, I'm not really playing these days because it's, it's very difficult and it's a lot of pain, but uh, I figured you got to do that, you know? <laughs> so right. uh, I told him, I said, I didn't know any of those old songs. I'm going to sing a Brad Paisley song for you, and then I started singing one of his songs, and mm -hmm. he just uh. <laughs> lit up like it. But I got, <laughs> I got done, and, and I was pushing it a little bit on purpose, but I got done, and he leaned back, and he put his hand on his chin with that big Mac Wiseman Santa Claus smile, and he said... I hear a little bit of me in there. I said, hell, I stole it all from you, Matt. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. They tell me that you're going away. What made you want to leave? You gave me your love and you gave me your vows. Now you're leaving me here to grieve. Bashful Brother Oswald. Yeah, there was a great guy and a hell of an entertainer. You know, towards the end there, after Roy passed away, you know, Oz had been there as long as Roy. Can you do his laugh? They would laugh. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
<laughs> everybody hear me all right? <laughs> Can everybody hear me all right? <laughs> they would let Oz and Charlie know if they should show up on Friday every Thursday. <laughs> Which, it just didn't seem very cool to me, you know? And uh, I don't think Oz ever was made a member of the Opry. Maybe mm -hmm. I'm wrong, but he'd been there since 38. The Smoky Mountain Boys. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, uh, he just he just didn't play side man he was he did the singing <laughs> i always thought he was great on his own right in fact i would buy those uh, roy eckhoff uh, you can buy them in box sets now when he was on the radio i think for rc cola and every so often they would let oswald sing a song and those are the whole reasons i bought those those collections because of his Armstead found those transcriptions in a thrift shop in Knoxville hmm. for like two dollars a piece. So he was behind and, that. And if he hadn't found those, they probably would have just wound up in some collector's attic or something, or oh. thrown away. But so, yeah, we owe Mark, Mike Armstrong to, and he uh, he went to the boys that you know that were still living in Oz, and, and he, he mm -hmm. asked their blessing, you know, and they said, oh, of course. That's back in the day out. when the radio stations they were sent the transcripts and then they sent them back. When they were after they played him, right? I I'm think the company sure. I, might yeah, have recycled him. I, I, I or think they're supposed to. And then I, I had a friend named uh, Chuck Sherman when I was a kid in Erie. I was sitting out on the front porch in kind of a busy little, you know, small house street. Could kind of see through the yards up through the next block, and, and uh, this old man was kind of staring at me. And eventually, he came walking through the yards and walked over, and he said, "You play all those?" I said, "Yeah." And he, introduced himself to me as a fellow named Chuck Sherman who goes back to the to the to the thirties yet in country music and I had no idea that he but he's he's on wheeling you know way back in the old days. He got a job at Border Radio at one point, was uh, like the janitor on the side to make some extra money. His job a few times was to take all the transcriptions of the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers out back and, and destroy them no kidding <laughs> and he had he said he never got over that it always just killed him but oh, they just like yep it's done you gotta that's the law or that's the rules or that's what, so just imagine well, all the music that was lost from right. especially during the war years that's a lot of what we have because mm -hmm. there were such restrictions on pressing records yeah there was a shortage the, the greatest era in country music to me was that 40s and so much of it didn't get right. recorded other than those transcriptions. Plus, I mean, not only was the shortage to record the stuff in the first place, but a lot of, uh, especially poor folks, blacks and whites, would burn the shellac that those records are made out of to for heat. Yeah. You know, they were so cold. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's some of the better stuff, the, fo the stuff that those folks bought. Anyway, yeah, yeah. I'm about to cry. And you have a blues sound about you. See, I guess the first thing I ever really loved was uh, 
I loved music, you know, and I was just still exploring it. And I have an older sister, quite a bit older, that was, you know, all the Beatles records came home, all the Stones records. And, and then my father, like, you know, big band music, swing music, and my mother, like, country music or, you know, hillbilly back then, they called it. So I kind of had all those things floating around in my head. I went to the library one day and I'd always go and check out as many records as they let me. And one caught my eye and it was uh, it was Louis Armstrong and the Hot Five and that's just, that's just, that was it for me. I put on Heebie Jeebie Blues and, and, some, and Muskrat Ramble. <laughs> checked that record out until they wouldn't let me anymore mm -hmm. and then I started going and digging and digging and digging and trying to find every possible Louis Armstrong 78s actually aren't so easy to find and they're very valuable now but I love his playing he's the best you know but it's just something about his singing he just phrased everybody copied after that mm -hmm. and he had that scratchy funny voice people don't really hear it but it's he, he changed that stiff way of singing mm -hmm into, you know, really swinging it. I had a woman <laughs> living way back in town. Oh, she treated me right. Never let me down. I did a two-year stint where I just kind of walked away from everything I was doing and, and headed up to Harlem and I dug up all the old jazz guys I could find that were still kicking and a lot of them played on a lot of the jump blues records and the blues records because that's who they used were the good jazz players on those sessions so I had a group made up one time with Bubba Brooks who's a contemporary Lester Youngs and it's hard to say who they played with because it's just like the blue guys they all played with everybody um, Bubba didn't play with Duke Ellington, that's about it. <laughs> played with everybody else. Eddie Swanson, who played piano for Armstrong from 40 to 50, and arranged and wrote a lot of songs. Al Casey, I've made a few recordings with and performed a little bit with, but you know, he's debatably the first swing guitar player, you know. stuff, Al Casey, and it was a real honor to, wasn't so easy to get in with those guys, <laughs> they didn't trust nobody, you know, and uh, but once I was in, it was like family, and a drummer named Walter Perkins, who, there's one clip of him on YouTube, that it just, it wasn't really a drummer, he's a musician, it was unbelievable what he could do on his solos and stuff. none of them had dropped a lick mm -hmm. you know they all played just, just like they used to and uh, this was at a really strange time when I did this because it was pre and post 9-11 and everybody mm -hmm. was kind of you know especially in New York you know which sure. is where this all this happened but yeah I actually did have kind of a hard time getting it off the ground um, 
I was really kind of shocked. I guess things are never appreciated in their hometown, so to speak. And even those guys, the, even at, you know, Al was pushing 90, but they were still heading to Europe every chance they got because they were still revered oh treated like rock stars over there yeah. you know when i recorded and played with them i called it the harlem all-stars but uh they 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 went by uh, the harlem blues and jazz band which had been a revolving band since 72 with people that went literally to the turn of the century like mm -hmm. barrel house singers and mm -hmm. you know doc cheatham started recording in 1917 i think <laughs> So and as the years, I think there is still a Harlem jazz and blues band, but as the years go by, the decades of sure. where the guys are from change. When I played with them, it was somewhere between the 30s to the early 50s. And those guys were still alive and kicking and playing. Why did you go to New York? Was it for music, right? I'd strived all those years to do what I did in Nashville, and I kind of felt like I launched it. And I also saw things kind of going in a way I didn't like, you mm -hmm. know. And, uh, Down in Nashville, we're talking about? Yeah, it, things change, mm -hmm. music change, taste change. You don't have to say it, but I'll say it. Maybe things downtown became a little caricature of, of hillbilly music yeah. and rockabilly. I mean, the, everybody's like, you're so lucky that you got to study with, you know, work with, be around, you know, Bill and Rykoff and all these guys. And uh, my answer is always like, well, you could have. Mm -hmm. You know, that these kids, they couldn't have. But, you know, people my age, like, man, I wish I'd have done that back then. I just feel like my generation kind of dropped the ball and there weren't enough people preserving. And so now this next generation had no direct teachers. Mm -hmm. See, that's what I'm leading up to. Well, the whole Tootsie thing got out of hand and the press was ridiculous, you know, all over the world. And all of a sudden, every record label in town was after me and every publishing company in town was after me and I had written one song. What song was it? A song called Safe Within Your Arm. If today the sun should set and never rise again If the world turned upon me publishing company sent this really pretty girl around <laughs> to keep trying to get me to come to the office. I said, look, I don't write songs. And she's like, look, we know. <laughs> Nobody really does when they start out, but you, you're going to get a record deal. You're going to be writing songs, and we want your publishing. So, and, uh, and that's true. You, you went on to write some songs. Well, I was kind of an archivalist at first, you know, the first half of my musical career, so to speak. And I got three, 4,000 songs up there. I mean, in the brain. Okay. That I've memorized and can perform you know it might take me a minute to get all the verses out or something mm -hmm. but you know i was just obsessively learned mm -hmm. american folk music to try to preserve something well the thing was i just i sat down one day in the middle of all this and i thought everybody's trying to sign me to a deal i got a buzz out in los angeles even everybody's talking about me nobody's heard a note Nobody's heard a stinking note. It's that's all it. just talk. That's the industry. So what, what popped in my head was, well, hell, son, you can do anything you wanted. 
So I was like, all right, this hillbilly thing is what it is. It's never gonna be huge. I'm in my late 20s. This is my chance to try to do something of my own. So I just kind of was tooling around for a minute trying to figure out what that would be and I was riding down the road with a friend of mine out in the country a you know, big old 71 Cadillac convertible and we were listening to the local college station and uh, Wandering Stars by Portishead came on Wandering Stars For whom it is preserved The blackness The darkness Forever And I said pull over pull over I cranked it. I got out and laid on the hood and looked up at the sky. And I was like, that's it. There's something different there. There's something like, it's still good music. It's mm -hmm. still real. It's still groove. It's still heartfelt. Because I was one of the first cats to work with the, the outside of hip hop, to work with the loops and then I'll put all that stuff together. I picked up a Rolling Stone one day and it said, new trip harp artist Greg Gehring and I freaked out. I called my publisher. I was like, what the hell is that? He's like, no, 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 calm down. That's mm -hmm. a good thing. Mm -hmm. That's what they're starting to call Portishead and Tricky and now you. Your own record is number six record of the year in the New York Times Tops and Pops and Radiohead's OK Computer was seven. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, person at the record label just to be a control freak pulled the records out of the stores mm -hmm. <laughs> so no one could buy them <laughs> and I thought okay I made a mistake I don't even want to do this I don't want to be in this world I don't want to be in the you know now there's no such thing practically as mm -hmm. the big leagues and the majors mm -hmm. you know that's when I went up to Harlem and got real <laughs> mm -hmm. so, yeah, I just want to go back to playing music again mm -hmm. I, I, I loved the music I was making mm -hmm. at that time but the business is bad enough on a small level that you start getting up there with the, you know, some of the business people I worked with have mm -hmm. had books written about them mm -hmm. <laughs> and not positive ones. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a nasty business, but at least it's falling apart. <laughs> Sing my rose of old Kentucky Mighty dark to travel on of time have fallen for the one I love is gone now where we met was at Logue's Black Raven Emporium and you started to play again with a kind of a I guess a patchwork of guys right yeah it it, it 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 was always different but it was it was bits and pieces of my original crew you know mm -hmm. Kenny Vaughn and Chris Scruggs and Hoot Hester was coming around for a while. Were you doing the gigs just to, to have some fun, or? Well, I was pretty seriously trying to, you know, get something going. I'd just come back to Nashville. Finally kind of had my health under control a little bit to where I was quite a bit stronger and and uh, able to perform. And of course, as soon as I was, I just went, <laughs> I went at it full throttle and I really should have taken more time off. but. Mm -hmm. It, over the last year it's been so exhausting to perform mm -hmm. that I kind of dwindled. I've I've gone from playing five days a week to playing two shows this entire mm -hmm. last year. How did it feel working with Robert again since you guys worked with the Shakers and now he had his little club? Yeah, it was great. The, the, uh, Robert's a really special guy and uh, it's just a shame that they had to close up. And mm -hmm. It's one of those places that'll be talked about for a long time. People yeah. are always mentioning it to me. 
Mm -hmm. They saw me play there, they used to go there for the movies. Flying on the wings of old love Sweet yesterdays stand in my way Of course, you, you have your health issues now, but if that gets remedied, what's your next move? What, what do you want to work on? I'm not sure, you know, I just I just finished a record and a half actually one complete album and one about half done you know between being a little mobilized right now and not being able to perform and the shambles the business is in i just don't know i really don't the music i make these days is just my own you know it's whatever comes out and uh, i i like not overproduced big production stuff you know i like play in the studio i love to arrange mm -hmm. I, I, I've done quite a bit with string sections mm -hmm. lately, and some bluesier stuff with horn sections, and then just some straight old country stuff. Well, that's all for now. Again, if the spirit moves you, please check out Help Greg Gehring Get Well on GoFundMe.com. Again, I'm a spun counter guy, and thanks for listening in. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. And if you'd like to see a list of former episodes of In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, go to spuncounterguy.com and click on the pictures of piles of wood with chairs in front. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. <laughs> <laughs>